0: Have you ever wondered where snow comes from? If you're a believer in fairy tales, you will know that it originates from a dark castle that sits on a high hill. Inside that castle, a young man, whose fingers are made of very sharp blades, chips away at blocks of ice, the tiny flakes flaring up into the air, where the wind then carries them across the moonlit land. But, beautiful as that may look, it is really an expression of loneliness. Because it only snows when the young man's solitude becomes so great, His isolation leaves him so bereft that he hacks at the ice in, not anger, but anguish. Sounds enchanting, but like many things quixotic, it carries something rather sinister. What we now read to children, safe in the knowledge that they are suitable bedtime stories, Snow White, Pinocchio, Little Red Riding Hood and Sleeping Beauty, each used to contain chapters depicting murder, cannibalism, rape, bestiality, torture and mutilation. Which is to say that strange as Edward Scissorhands already was when it was released back in December 1990, it could have been even more strange, if not a very sinister film. That it wasn't and that we don't consider the lead character to be any sort of monster is no doubt due to how he was regarded by the people who created him. Unlike in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where the Doctor considered his creation to be a monster, to director Tim Burton and screenwriter Carolyn Thompson, they were telling a modern fairy tale, and with its contemporary twist, expressing what it feels like to be an outsider. Here is Thompson recalling how the story started. Uh,
1: We were both at the same agency, Tim Burton and I, and... Neither of our agents knew what to do with either of us, to be perfectly honest, in terms of sensibility. And they thought that we would get along, and indeed we did. Um, I don't think our agents really had a goal in setting us up as people to talk to each other. They just sort of you know, wanted to appear busy, I think. So uh, we, we became good friends and, and really did want to work together. And um, so one night at a bar in Brentwood, Tim told me about a drawing he had made in high school of a character who had scissors for hands. And I said, stop right there. I know what to do with that. I mean, the story just came sort of like, boom, I wrote it in three weeks, it was just
0: Tim Burton grew up in 1960s Burbank, California. Not a particularly diligent student, his teachers were perplexed by what they perceived as indolence. But what they failed to understand was that Burton's attention was elsewhere, the movies, not just watching, but making. Burton's first short films had no dialogue or sound, or even actors. Instead, he used plasticine. And what he created displayed such a unique vision that he won a scholarship to the California Institute of Arts. While there, he made another film that, although it lasted barely 90 seconds, it secured him a job at Disney Studios. But more than that, the film shot an 8mm when Burton was barely 21 years old, Boasts such singular ability that it is now archived in the Library of Congress in Washington for its cultural, historical, and aesthetic significance. Let me repeat: a film just 90 seconds long, shot in 8 mm when Burton was 21. It's called "Stalk of the Celery Monster," and you can see it on YouTube. <laughs>
1: I'm Johnny!
0: The cliche would be that you're witnessing the formation of a future genius but when in 1979 burton's fellow classmates who included future oscar winners john musker who went on to direct the little mermaid and aladdin brad bird creator of the incredibles and ratatouille and most famous of all john Lasseter, when they saw burton's film they knew that they were witnessing an idea so clearly expressed in the lines of a pencil drawing that to take just one frame and examine it on its own you were looking at the complete distillation of the rest of the film. So, when Thompson saw Burton's drawing of a boy with scissors for hands, of course she understood precisely what he meant. Thompson had since penned The Adams Family, Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey, The Secret Garden, The Nightmare Before Christmas, The Corpse Bride, and Black Beauty. But for Edward Scissorhands, she decided not to write it as a script, but in prose. 70 pages of it. Thompson began her career as a novelist, And at the time of her meeting with Burton in 1986 she was an author in search of her second novel.
1: So I moved from the east coast in 1979 um, from Washington DC and I moved to California to escape the east. Uh, Not to run to the movie business but to run away from home. I um, had wanted to be a fiction writer since I can remember and I wrote and published a novel when I was 26 called Firstborn.
0: Published in 1983, Firstborn centred on the life of Claire Nash, a suburban housewife who opted to abort her pregnancy because her husband felt it would impede his legal career. Years later, with Claire still married to Edward, but now the mother of a young boy, Neddy, the memory of the abortion begins to haunt her, to the point that she senses the foetus may have survived and returned to plague her. Described like that, it sounds like an anti-planned parenthood rant. But Thompson safely avoided any politically motivated judgments of Clare by deploying a structure like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Firstborn comes in the form of a diary, which begins in the early 1970s, but which has subsequently been edited and annotated by Claire's friend Anita Warner and presented to us in the early 1980s. As a literary form, diaries are so heavily subjective they are always unreliable. But in this instance, it is not so much that Claire is an unreliable narrator, as much as her friend Anita is an unreliable editor.
1: It's uh, my adolescent anger novel. It's sort of a Frankenstein story and a send-up of suburbia. It was meant to be um, blackly comedic.
0: Take the black comedy out of that equation and you're left with Frankenstein, suburbia and adolescence. Which isn't so much of a leap to Edward Scissorhands. And it doesn't take a big leap of imagination to understand that the young man with the blades for fingers was the way Tim Burton felt about his childhood. Here is Burton in 2013, being interviewed by Scott Feinberg for The Hollywood Reporter.
1: Well, I think pretty much, I I don't think I had that unusual. I think pretty much every kid would kind of say the same kind of thing. You know, you feel kind of different and isolated and you don't feel like you fit into your surroundings and society. But at the specific time that I grew up in sort of suburbia. It it didn't, I didn't feel it was quite interesting how quickly you get sort of categorized as a child and so I think I've always been aware of that and uh, I think that's why I like movies like Frankenstein where you know you look at the character and he's he's perceived as a monster even though he isn't really, he's just different and the angry villagers you know it was easy to sort of identify that with your neighbors and You know, the sort of mad scientist. I always wanted to be a mad scientist. So, you know, all those kind of things made it easy to identify with those kind of movies.
0: Yet, for all of Burton's intensity, ingenuity and sense of isolation as a child, he is not the first Hollywood filmmaker to turn his experiences into a fairy tale. Edward Scissorhands would make a very interesting double bill with another story of feeling so awkward and different from everyone else in suburbia. You feel like you're such a freak. You might as well be from another planet.
1: I taught him how to talk. Now he can Elliot, talk now.
0: Elliot.
1: Look what he brought Elliot, up here all by himself.
0: Elliot.
1: What's he need this Elliot, stuff for?
0: Elliot.
1: <laughs> et. Can you say that? Can you say et? Et.
0: Et. Just as Et can be read as a manifestation of Elliot's loneliness, a suburban boy so traumatized by his parents' divorce and so alienated from what remains of his family. He literally wills the extraterrestrial into existence. So too does Edward represent a solitude so deeply seated that however great his longing for human contact may be, with scissors for hands, it's not so much that no one will go near him, it's that he can't go near them for fear his touch will cause injury. In other words, Edward's body is a prison from which he can find no release. And that can be seen in the costume he wears designed by Colleen Atwood. This film was the first time Atwood collaborated with Burton, and so successful was the partnership that they have since worked together on 11 films, including the forthcoming live-action version of Dumbo. Atwood's other credits include Jonathan Demme's horror thriller The Silence of the Lambs, Andrew Nichols' sci-fi Gattaca, and Michael Mann's gangster picture Public Enemies. For Edward, Atwood decided on a wardrobe that would be all leather, straps and buckles the idea being that Edward would look like a prisoner in his own clothing. Atwood has earned no less than four Oscars for her work on Chicago, Memoirs of a Geisha, Alice in Wonderland, and Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And here she is early this year at the Sourband Foundation speaking with Eddie Redmayne.
1: I have to say I'm kind of crappy at drawing, but I can kind of figure it out from, you know, I do like rough drawings and images, but... A lot of times my influence comes from like a textile or a, or a kind, of, kind of rough thing that way. But the thing that happens when you collaborate with these guys like Tim, you kind of remember where they've come from. And, you know, one thing about an, an artist like that, if, if they come from that sort of cartoon background in a sense, they see things, they see some things in the room in a different way than you're going to see them. And it's a really interesting way to approach design because it's kind of unpredictable, but predictable at the same time. Right.
0: But as startling and bizarre as Edward may look, you can source his appearance to a series of stories originally published in mid 19th century Germany. Heinrich Hoffmann was initially a psychiatrist who decided to write and illustrate some stories to help his three year old son understand the dangers of certain behavioral patterns, tormenting animals, playing with matches and refusing to eat. One of the most popular and enduring of all children's stories, the most startling and bizarre of Hoffmann's characters was Der Struvelpater, or Shaggy Peter, an unusual-looking boy who has a great shock of hair and very, very long fingernails who comes along to warn children of the dangers of sucking their thumbs. For the children who persist, Peter chops off their digits. Sounds gruesome, but again, most fairy tales contain some very shocking elements. But the real question is, how did Burton and his team fashion such a potentially dark story and yet veer away from the truly sinister? Even though the skies are always blue, the front lawns immaculately manicured and the houses perfect pastels, it still could have come across as malevolent. A large reason why it avoids that darkness is the score by Danny Elfman. That is not Elfman's score for the film. Instead, it is Serenata Schizophrenia, his first major symphonic work. Like many things that Elfman does, it is finely balanced between various styles and tropes. You have large orchestral sweeps slipping into minimalist phrases, his signature style of complex overlapping and controlled dissonance, and then the classic and modern. The simplest way to recognise that is where most symphonies are structured around four movements. Elfman uses six. And if you listen carefully, you might just hear some of the composers Elfman lists as his influences. Bernard Herrmann, Nina Rota, Dmitry Chomkin, Max Steiner, Eric Korngold, Igor Stravinsky, Sergei Prokofiev, Bella Bartok, Dmitry Shostakovich, Carl Orff, Kurt Weill, Duke Ellington, Harry Parch and Philip Glass. Which is more than ironic, because Elfman's score itself has been enormously influential on other films and TV commercials. Here is Elfman speaking on the DVD commentary. I guess if one ever had any idea while they were doing a piece of work what or how it might carry into the future, it would probably be a terrible thing. Um, I certainly never had any idea when I was writing the music to Edward Scissorhands so many years ago that it was going to um, be imitated and copied as much as it was of all the works that I've done. uh, This more than practically all the rest of them combined. And uh, if I'd have known that, it probably would have uh, scared me and uh, affected how I was doing it. I, it never occurred to me that this little cult funny uh, thing that I really enjoyed was going to uh, keep reappearing year after year. I guess there's one or two films per year since then, in, even last year and the year before, <laughs> where um, variations on Edward's themes keeps popping up. Now, I don't know enough about music to be able to recognize all the sources of inspiration in Elfman's scores but I do know enough about film scores to know that a big influence was Nino Rota. Rota's most famous theme is The Godfather, but he scored no less than 15 films for Italian maestro Federico Fellini. from Fellini's masterpiece Eight and a Half and the counterpoint is very reminiscent of a circus march. Fellini loved circuses and carnivals and those elements are often evident in Elphin's collaborations with Burton. Sample this from Beetlejuice. Now, I've not yet mentioned Johnny Depp. The Burton-Depp collaboration is one of the most enduring and successful in modern Hollywood. And it all started here. Depp's depiction of Edward is a remarkable display of emotional accuracy. But he was not everyone's first choice for the part. Certainly not Caroline Thompson, who wanted John Cusack. Tom Cruise, Robert Downey Jr., Jim Carrey and even Michael Jackson had each expressed an interest in the role. But eventually, Burton went with Depp for the simple yet profound reason that he sensed that there was someone else beneath the face that had graced a thousand teen magazine covers. For his part, Depp portrayed Edward as if he were in a silent movie. Indeed, Edward barely speaks 169 words in the entire film. In which case, we leave the final, precinct words to Depp himself, here in an interview from 1990 to promote the film's release.
1: The most common thing that they try to label you as rebel, or bad boy, or something, one of those horrible... You know, silly names, and uh, it, it, it's just—it's just such a joke, you know. I mean, every young actor who's come out, they try and say, "Oh, he's a bad boy. He's a—he looks this way, so he's, he's a, a rebel, or He's a James Dean type, or he's a young Brando, or he's a—you know—how can you—you know—you can't do that. It's—it's—it's it's, it's impossible to know a person um, just by looking at him.